0: And welcome to Rock and Roll Politics with me, Steve Richards. Thank you very much indeed for tuning in wherever you are. It's great to have you and as ever we've got a lot to get through together, making sense of it all, some brilliant points and questions to come. I'll be reflecting a bit on one or two things uh, before your questions and before my reflections on things, themes, uh, just a reminder... I'm live at King's Place, just like the olden days. Do you remember when we could gather together in one place on June the 28th? And tickets are available on the King's Place website. It's also being streamed. So wherever you are around the world, you can tune in live and for the following seven days. God knows where we'll be by then. Politics, well, I was gonna say moves fast, that's wrong um harold wilson's much repeated observation a week is a long time in politics is not really true um there's an impression quite often of pace and speed and fast moving events but when you stand back you see shapes and patterns that have been in place for quite some time but i still having said all that god knows where we'll be on june the 28th or in july uh, when i'm going to be live at the greenwich theatre and the Rope Tackle Art Centre in Shoreham. Uh, so if you're on the South Coast, there are tickets there on their website and similarly uh, for the Greenwich event at the Greenwich website. So see you there in real life. Oh yeah, just like those olden days. But before all of that, there is a big uh, moment coming up which is the decision whether to lock, open up lockdown completely and it is so interesting how patterns recur there are close to a sort of perverse fetishizing about dates in Britain's or Boris Johnson's approach sorry it should say England of course approach to ending lockdowns do you remember that period Basically from September onwards, I'm told, Johnson was obsessed about Christmas and how things should be opened up for Christmas. And in a way that obsession drove his responses along with his libertarian instincts. His libertarian instincts meant that he ignored the scientific advice and indeed the advice from the now revered saintly Dominic Cummings to lock down in Early autumn, but then the focus became Christmas. We must have Christmas, we must have Christmas, we'll free up for Christmas. And when uh, uncharacteristically Starmer was brave enough to say, Look, actually, the constraints should be in place, uh, Johnson mocked him uh, for being a killjoy over Christmas, and then, of course, we all know what happened, and it should have happened much earlier. Suddenly all those Christmas plans were cancelled and Britain was in the midst of a really dangerous wave of this virus. Now I have no idea whether we're out of this, uh, facing the prospects of a third wave, whether the vaccinations make a wholly different context to the decisions about to be made. But boy, can you see a familiar pattern in place. I've talked before about how patterns recur in politics, like a kind of film noir, where <clears throat> even though you recognise the positions you're adopting lead to a kind of dark doom, you continue to adopt them. Johnson has done that throughout the pandemic, uh, not locking down early enough at least twice arguably three times you know last Mar- the march before last uh, the early autumn the christmas period and now we're building up to another of these sort of climactics where the date like december 25th has acquired a sort of almost mythical status freedom day freedom day uh, with no reverse gear and yet there is this Indian variant uh, itself apparently mutating. I'm not quite sure of the science. Well, i not, not quite sure. don't know anything about science, but you can see the patterns. The refusal of Johnson to uh, fully lock down and block travel to and from India, as many other countries did when the Indian variant became well known. Uh, apparently. We don't know this for sure. I don't think Starmer has asked him or He hasn't been asked in in a way that you get any precise responses, because post-Brexit, Johnson aches for a trade deal with India. By the way, isn't it interesting how these puny little trade deals are being paraded as if they are mountainous triumphs compared with the EU free trade deal the UK had before Brexit. Brexit is still there lurking underneath much that is happening. Anyway, there we go again. His libertarian instincts, his desire for a trade deal, meant that the travel arrangements between India and the UK remained lax compared with other European countries and other places around the world which immediately kind of closed off their borders to travel to and from India. The UK didn't. The variant is here, and is already spreading fast. Now I accept that um, I don't want. Why I want everything to open up? I've just told you I'm doing loads of live shows, on the assumption things are opening up. We all want things to open up, but in the context of being safe. There is absolutely no point in opening everything up, returning to normal, and in inverted commas, if the consequence is a third wave, in whatever form that takes. Of course it will be different with the vaccines. But you can see the build-up and the pressure and the same precise ingredients again. The same Tory MP saying it's got to happen. Ian Duncan Smith that well-known, reliable narrator. And others from that wing of the Conservative Party that is both libertarian and rebellious by instinct. They enjoy the assertion of muscular revolt, a habit learnt with Brexit and many other issues too. So interesting that the Conservative Parliamentary Party in its modern manifestation since the early 1990s has become as rebellious as the Labour Party was in the 70s when they were in power and the government lost votes, almost as a matter of course. Um, The Labour Party was always difficult to lead. The Conservative Party was relatively easy to lead, not any longer. So there they all are again, the same ones who said he must give us all our Christmas, he must give us all our Autumns, Johnson that is, Uh, and the same MPs are now saying, he must keep to the timetable, come what may, uh, we must free up uh, on the assigned date in this month. Uh, The newspapers are the same as they were. We're gonna have Christmas, yeah, Christmas crackers with Boris and all that kind of thing, before it was clear that many would die if the plans went ahead they are now campaigning for Freedom Day and they're the papers of course that Johnson reads and cares about. He's scared of those MPs many of whom propelled him into a leadership position uh, in July of 2019 and we have Johnson himself this uh, libertarian by instinct who prefers if he can to rely on what he calls the good judgment of the people uh, rather than to impose rules hence I assume the ambiguous chaos caused by the amber code for travel and people in Portugal on holiday exercised their good judgment in inverted commas went on holiday and are now having to rush back in what will be a bonkers journey on Monday or Tuesday um, because of what has now happened to Portugal being placed in that amber category. Uh, So I don't know what's going to happen, the government hasn't decided, Johnson hasn't decided, but you can see the pattern forming for miscalculations. I don't know what form they will take. I would be surprised given the caution being urged by the scientists that Johnson wholly opens up um, as was theoretically scheduled to happen this month. Um, Perhaps there will be what Tony Blair would call a third way with home working continuing but quite a lot of opening up. Uh, But it will be another key moment and a key moment where as I say the patterns are in place, for dark consequences. I really hope they don't happen. But there is this thing, I've talked about it before, it's so kind of bizarre and yet understandable, these recurring patterns. In the 1970s, it was over incomes policy. Each prime minister in the 1970s came into power, opposed to incomes policy, knowing that they would lead to disaster. In a panic, imposed an incomes policy, and sure enough, it propelled them to their doom. Ted Heath fell, in effect, over an incomes policy. Harold Wilson came in, and characteristically having opposed Heath's income policy. He, he announced a voluntary incomes policy, but one which the government could uh, compel um, if the voluntary policy wasn't adhered to, very Wilsonian uh, policy. Jim Callaghan came in, he had been scathing about incomes policies, introduced one, led to the winter of discontent and to his doom. Uh, These recurring patterns are so interesting and it's not, uh, even with Johnson's case, who is not one for reflection and deep analysis, it's not that they can't look back and learn. It is a combination of instinct, context, immediate context not kind of going further back and panic, a desire to please various interest groups within a party and the media it's a whole combination of things but these are familiar recurring patterns so is something else and this is really interesting or I think they will become recurring patterns, and that is this fascinating dispute over how much money should be spent on remedying the great education gap that has arisen uh, from the pandemic and famously as part of his levelling up agenda Johnson said education was the number one priority he appointed this crusading education advisor who came up with a package which would cost 15 billion pounds to implement and uh, sunak vetoed it in the end johnson agreed with sunak having said he would give the full his full backing to his advisor the advisor resigned and britain is spending far less on this crusading theme than equivalent sized countries and indeed Countries like the United States, not well-known, pre-Biden, for investment and high levels of public spending. And here, I think, is a really interesting template. We've talked a lot in this podcast about levelling up and how that phrase implies agency with the state. Who else is going to do the levelling up um, if not the state? The state, at least, would have to be a main player, pivotal player and it implies investment and spending but sunak's instincts i think you know it's partly he's now imbued in the sort of treasury sound money culture but i think he is a sort of Osborneite, stroke thatcherite in his instincts and was not going to give this the go-ahead and how many other equivalents will there be in the coming months and years and what does this do to the levelling up agenda? It has to be fleshed out by policy and initiatives. And these tend to be expensive. Of course, every penny should be efficiently spent. And if Sunak or Treasury officials were wary of inefficient spending in this particular project, sure, weed that out. But to weed... 14 or billion out of the originally proposed 15 billion shows that they're going to really struggle with this levelling up agenda. Remember last July, uh, Johnson went up to I think it was July, it might have been September. Johnson went up to Coventry and did a big speech. All the political editors went up with him. Call me Rooseveltian, I, uh, New Deal, big uh, big spender, um, and this first test of spending in the area he has claimed to be prioritizing, and we get a miserly sum of money. This gap between the grandeur of the phrase and leveling up is a grand phrase. They all are uh, reconnecting the left behind, hugely ambitious. Uh, a, a more supple, clever Labour leadership would be onto this in all kinds of different ways, not just somewhat kind of vaguely pledging to spend the 15 billion quid, but framing their whole programme around this left of centre language, but fleshing it out with real, radical, credible policies. There shouldn't be some vague policy review and keir starmer on pierce morgan saying i stand for forward not back that terrible vacuous phrase which incidentally was going to be the slogan of um maybe it remained it was when anna Milburn was briefly put in charge of Labour's 2005 election campaign that was the slogan forward not back utterly vacuous um anyway keir starmer framed his leadership around this slogan in his on the whole well-received appearance on Piers Morgan I thought it was a bit stilted uh, frankly Um, but it was very well received on the whole by the Twitterati which is a good thing because that kind of feeds on itself but anyway there will be much more of this to come because levelling up is not only it's very interesting the phrase I was thinking about it the other day it implies a continuous process as well, not just we will level up, but levelling up, it's, a, it's the verb, is it continuous, the technical phrase for levelling, um, it, it implies a continuous programme of investment. Of course, it's not just about investment, it's how the investment is spent, etc. But sure, investment is part of it. And here we have the first example and Rishi Sunak has become much more assertive since Dominic Cummings left he was very conscious Sunak that Dominic Cummings in effect made him chancellor Uh, Dominic Cummings told Johnson he Johnson needed to get rid of Sajiv Javid because Javid wouldn't accept rightly special advisers being imposed on him so Johnson uh, meekly and extraordinarily accepted that he would have to sack his chancellor astonishing when you think about it and even more astonishing when you see their relationship now Cummings and Johnson and Sunak was deeply aware that he was Cummings appointment and was very unassertive at first and his first budget read out phrases composed in Downing Street uh, you know and and it did have a more Keynesian argument his first uh, budget and that incidentally before the pandemic had really struck so it's uh, but Cummings has now gone so his patron Sunak's patron in number 10 is no longer there and he's becoming more assertive and at this first very interesting example Johnson wholly conceded to Sunak we will see if this continues with what implications no implications in the opinion polls of course but as Alastair Campbell pointed out one of the divides Uh, he wrote a piece in the new european about this rightly one of the divides certainly in england at the moment is those who are following politics like us lot and those who clearly aren't paying any attention whatsoever and this has always been a divide in politics but i think it's particularly marked now because if some were paying attention uh you know even if in the end come an election they voted conservative they wouldn't be doing so now Uh, there was a familiar pattern do you remember of mid-term protests against governments people always talked about mid-term being problematic Um, well there's a mountain of reasons for voters to register that at the moment and they're not paying attention and they're all delighted with the vaccine and their assumption that we're coming out of this Uh, but that is a profound divide us lot listening to this podcast are so unrepresentative of everything probably anyway that's enough of me let's turn to some fantastic questions the first one relates to yeah the uh, Ed Miliband interview on the podcast last week this is really interesting and it shows how sorry I'm just uh finding your questions hence this uh Oh, it's all seamless on this rock and roll politics podcast. Here we are, here are the questions. Yeah, now I can't even remember saying this, but it's from uh, Habib uh, Chaudhry and he says, I couldn't help noticing that in your postscript to the Ed Miliband interview, you made an aside that you wish you devoted some time to the question of how Labour would pay for Ed Miliband's proposed transformations. I can't remember saying that, it's, it is interesting. Uh, Obviously, I did. Um, I mean, it's not the kind of thing you imagine as you listen. Oh, he said that. No, 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 I didn't. No, I accept I did. Um, And Habib makes a really interesting point. He says, I can assure you that your interview was all the better for not containing this usual tired framing device. The reason I'm bewildered is I so agree with that. And we've discussed it here before. Oh god the endless interviews with ed Miliband and ed balls between 2010 to 2015. so oh i see so if you don't agree with osborne about that spending cut where would you cut to address the deficit Oh, the deficit the deficit oh it was such an one-sided framing and bought by virtually every interviewer certainly on the bbc uh, habib goes on to say macroeconomics as analogous to household debt, pay off the credit card, in inverted commas, is a deeply ideological position dispersed through the airwaves, more than enough, thanks to the BBC, who were satisfied with it as the assumed neutral stance. Exactly. They they don't consciously think it's biased. They assume it's impartial to work on the assumption that the economy is like a credit card and you pay off the debt. By the way, not everybody by any means, but some. Anyway, this is interesting. I'm gonna have a look at this. Uh, Mark Blythe's book, Austerity, The History of a Dangerous Idea, is the definitive headshot on this zombie lie uh, and recommended reading for anyone interested in the roots of the balance the books mantra that has more in common with religiosity than economics. It's also noteworthy that even Boris as the current figurehead of the pseudo-populist right is trying his hardest to distance himself from it yeah exactly when people say as they often do and this is part of the mindset oh you know this government is a, a, a shift to the right uh that's because of brexit you know and a sort of an english nationalism but on economics the language is way to the left of anything Cameron and Osborne and their predecessors would have ever contemplated. Now, as we've just discussed, and many people have emailed on this podcast, there is a gap between language and policy. But, I, you know, you're right. So I lapsed into it, Habib. You know, oh yeah, Ed Miliband. So you're talking about housing coming up to Vienna standards. So where are you going to get the money from, etc.? cetera? Um, it becomes like a sort of accountancy interview uh, where you're an accountant Say, so, oh, you I, know i see so you're going to spend 350 million there so you know yeah it, it it's utterly tedious and, and and a framing that's deeply subjective okay let's move on to some more questions one here from uh, Callum Walker now do you remember last week i posed the question to Ed Miliband and then later to myself talking to myself um Was Dominic Cummings, or is Dominic Cummings, on the left of centre? And that's why he falls out with all these Tory leaders in his interest in the state and so on. Anyway, Callum Walker writes, My impression of Johnson and Cummings is that both are rather conventionally libertarian, deeply cynical about the state being a force for good, and Cummings' drive for reform evolves exclusively out of that cynicism rather than from any deeper analysis. Maybe. I mean, he remains an enigma, Dominic Cummings. We had seven hours of him live on television a couple of weeks ago. Um, But there are many questions around him still. But as I say, I found him more interesting than the caricature, which was very limited. Uh, Callum adds, I listen to the podcast while working nights. Just don't tell my boss. I won't, Callum. Oh, God, he listens to the podcast, Callum. No, I I don't even know who he is. Don't worry. But thank you for giving your view on Cummings. They they, they certainly formed, Johnson and him, some kind of fleeting ideological bond. And Cummings now has worked for Ian Duncan Smith and Boris Johnson and Michael Gove. So certainly in his choices, he is not showing any left of centre tendencies. But I thought I would throw the question out there, uh, given his focus on how government works and should work, and his greater faith in the scientists than I realised uh, from what he was saying a couple of weeks ago. David uh, Fisher writes, I found myself thinking about, yet which I haven't heard or read any re- real deconstruction of. It was he's We're on about coming still. It was coming statement in relation to Boris Johnson. Uh, here's the quote. It is interesting, this quote. I was trying to create a structure around him, Johnson, to try and stop what I thought would have been bad decisions and push things through against his wishes. That's the quote. Now, David Fisher writes, Even if, like me, you agree with him that Johnson is utterly unfit for office, you can't escape the fact that Cummings, an unelected advisor, is openly admitting to attempting to subvert the will of an elected Prime Minister. Is what Cummings has admitted to here constitutionally legal? And if not, should he not be liable for legal repercussions? Uh, well, it's, it's constitutionally weird, David. It's certainly legal. Um, if uh, a prime minister gives his uh, selected chief advisor the space to do these things, um, he has every right to give it a go. But you're right, it is a remarkable quote. That Johnson's chosen advisor had such little faith in him he was actually trying to build a structure around him to stop Johnson from acting on his bad decisions uh, yeah it that is worth more exploration and well spotted as a focus um, but uh, Cummings had every right to do. I kind of admire Cummings for doing it because he was obviously so alarmed by Johnson's judgments that he tried to find ways of bypassing them. And when you think about how powerful a Prime Minister is in the context of a national emergency, that is quite an ambition and it's one that failed. And and he got sacked because in the end, the Prime Minister wields the power. Paul Cooper wonders, with the government setting the agenda on a future COVID inquiry in terms of timing and remit and so on, it must feel a bit futile for bereaved families to be heard, a feeling of learnt helplessness. Rather than being passive, what is to stop groups of campaigners starting to take evidence of their own uh, uh, and other family members and so on's experiences now right away? Nothing to stop them Paul, but it won't get much attention. There is a framing around a national inquiry. It might well be televised, if you remember, the Iraq one was, all the Iraq one was, except for the Hutton inquiry, which I don't think was. Um, and and I think the focus is just going to be on that, and the political significance will be on that one, if there is any, because as you suggest, the timing will be such that by the time it's over, hopefully the pandemic will be in the distance, and we will all have different preoccupations, Um, but I can't remember political fallout from any inquiry of any significance, Um, but I think still the framing and focus will be on the government announced inquiry uh, nice to hear from Matthew Johnson he said he was driving to a meeting in Dubai and listening to the podcast and when he arrived at the hotel where he was having a meeting there I was i do this program I think it must have been Dateline on uh, BBC World where a panel reflect on events um, anyway Matthew says keep keeping the rock and rollers in Dubai happy I, I like to think It was the start of a great party, Matthew, in uh, Dubai uh, at that hotel. Um, Jeff Strange has written, Hope all well, itching to get back live uh, in the flesh and up close for rock and roll politics at King's Place. Yeah, absolutely. i say, like the olden days, June the 28th. Um, Yeah, and Jeff lives near me and he says, It seems like a generation ago now when I ran my final 10K, packed in the sourdough, refrained from olive-based pasta dishes, and just happy with a tin of spaghetti hoops in deepest crouch end. Yeah, well, I think spaghetti hoops is pretty classic. Forget about sourdough. Um, He he said he enjoyed uh, the Ed Miliband interview uh, and rightly says, can we replace that kind of thing with uh, instead of, BBC question time with longer interviews. Yeah, yeah, people people kind of yearn for those things where there are conversations with people you might disagree with them, uh, you might loathe them, you might adore them, but most people in public life are in interesting positions in opposition or government and they face fascinating dilemmas. To reduce it all to a kind of screaming match between five panellists and an audience is depressing. And yeah, uh, we've been through it. I don't know anyone who likes it, uh, but there we go. Uh, A point that Miliband raised, this is Jeff's uh, email, was his genuine reluctance, dread even, at any prospect of being in that key leadership role ever again. Got me thinking how many PMs or opposition leaders really enjoyed or relished the leadership role post the honeymoon Period. Yeah, it is an interesting question. It's good to point that out. I mean, I think um, Ed Miliband has admitted publicly after losing the election, he had therapy. He's still recovering from the shock and the trauma. And I think he said, looking back, it's even worse than it was at the time. And um, he had to think about going back into the shadow cabinet because of the hell of leadership. All I would say briefly on that, because we've got so much uh, to get through, is that when I wrote my book on Prime Ministers, I really was struck, modern Prime Ministers, how many of them were miserable for so much of the time. They had this high of seizing the crown that so many want to wear and then found it all hellish uh, in so many different ways. Now, Ed Miliband didn't even get as far as number 10, of course, and it torments him, clearly, um, but uh, he found leadership pretty nightmarish. and. I'm sure jeremy corbyn did um, and he didn't get to number 10 and yeah most do and the reasons for it are to do with just the sheer demand these days managing these two big parties are a nightmare um the media scrutiny is more intense than ever and then you've got the social media and uh, you know, focus groups the whole thing is very very uh challenging and very few can rise to it as Keir Starmer frankly so far is uh, demonstrating. Uh, Stuart Smith, thank you for the podcast and I'm very much looking forward to the live stream of the theatre shows too. Thank you, uh, see you there uh, virtually Stuart if you if you can't make it. What's your excuse for not coming? Could Have a drink? Uh, anyway I'm sure you're miles away. Uh, Stuart Smith says, are we seeing the start of a pincer movement, which will eventually become too much even for Boris Johnson's Houdini-esque ability to overcome. Has the Treasury's resistance to and subsequent watering down of the education recovery plan this week shown the fundamental contradiction between the wider Keynesian rhetoric of the PM and the Treasury's desire for continued austerity, uh, first set and trained by the coalition? Well, exactly. Um, And good to root it back to the coalition era. Uh, yeah, we'll, we've discussed it, Stuart, and in fact I've only read your question because you were so nice about the show uh, because we have uh, discussed exactly that point, but you're onto it. And it's going to be fascinating to see how this evolves. And it won't evolve in a wholly straightforward way. In other words, I bet they find more money for education given the outcry. Um, but th- this will become a new pattern, like the terrible pandemic pattern I was reflecting on earlier. Uh, James Munro, reflecting on the Ed Miliband uh, conversation we had last week. uh, uh, Just a shame he couldn't cut it when it mattered. This is James uh, speaking. Whether it's in the Ed Stone, not being able to eat a bacon sandwich, the mansion tax. Uh, I recall Margaret Beckett writing a report into why Labour didn't win that election. She could have used two words, Ed Miliband. Yeah, well, he... uh, I think part of the torment is that he knows that part of it was a personal rejection. Leadership is such a high profile brief that, uh, and and by the way, this is the case for every single leader that loses when they had a chance of winning. Neil Kinnock, he's told me this publicly and more privately, took the 1992 election defeat personally. He knew that some voters didn't like him and it is really painful and it's the same for Ed Miliband. For William Hague, it's slightly different in that he never thought he had a hope of winning and therefore you can be slightly more relaxed about losing. Uh, Chris Caulfield says, thank you for the excellent podcast which I look forward to each week, thank you very much. Uh, I normally listen while walking, okay, by a canal Chris, with others or also listening, anyway. I've been interested in your observation that politicians often repeat the same mistakes. Ah, yeah, I've been talking about it again today. And I thought that Cummings' evidence added usefully to the picture of how mistakes were repeated in 2020. Most recently, the failure of our government to more effectively delay arrival of the Indian variant seems lamentable, yeah, and part of the pattern. Uh, yeah, well, uh, again, Chris, this is what I reflected on earlier um he poses a question apart from voting for whichever party is most likely to beat the tory candidate in my constituency in the next election what if anything can i do to contribute to the removing of boris johnson from the office from office well if you look at the opinion polls chris not a lot um but uh, it's uh, there's a long way to go there will be many more twists and turns I think there are reasons it's not a theme i'm going to reflect on today because it would take a whole podcast as to why uh boris johnson is popular and the conservatives are well ahead in the polls Um, but part of it is unquestionably the problems with the labor party which we've discussed a lot on this podcast andrew kitchen uh, emails. Um, I sincerely hope Tim Bale's comments. Tim Bale is a, an academic. You might. He does great podcasts. Sometimes uh, he works uh, on a whole range of political projects. Um, and yeah, he, he Tim tweeted data, not dates, wasn't it? Uh, in the light of all the backbenchers and so on pressing on uh, Boris Johnson to open up everything on schedule, irrespective of data. Uh, and Andrew also notes today, Radio 4 today seems as obsessed as the tabloids about travel abroad. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it is a, an issue, especially over the summer, uh, but apparently Tim Bale in this tweet also pointed out a poll which suggests 83% of the UK population happy to holiday at home. Uh, yeah, that does, I suppose there are tons still trapped to have booked a holiday abroad. I don't know, I haven't, so I just don't know. Um, uh, on a related issue, Kathy Mears wonders, the, uh, why the sudden change of heart on Portugal? Surely nothing to do with wanting to have it kept open for the Champions League final, just as de- the delay on closing the borders to India had nothing to do with the planned schmoozing of Modi. Yeah, well I'm sure Modi and the plan schmoozing was an issue uh, with India. And it's a good point. I forgot, of course, you know, the Champions League final. Imagine if they had um, done the change of heart on the eve of the Champions League final. All hell would have broken loose. So, yeah, good point. Thank you, Cathy. Fraser Rhodes. Um, yeah, he wondered, I've reflected before on how under Corbyn, uh, some so-called centrist Labour MPs, uh, you know, were openly uh, vile about him. Within minutes of him being elected leader, tweeting, uh, you know, their despair publicly. Um, uh, but uh, he asked Fraser, "Asked, do you remember if that was true when Blair was winning?" And you know, the the Corbynistas then on the backbenches and their, their followers. Uh, clearly wouldn't be backing the pro-EU New Labour, for example. I think that's the point you're making. Did they do the same? Um, well, there wasn't Twitter in that era to sort of quite vent your anger. I'm sure there was quite a lot of anger vented at various meetings and so on. But one thing about Corbyn, whatever you think about him, is he never went in for personal attacks. I think that's partly him. He, he He's not like that he partly modeled himself on Tony Benn who never went he always said about polishes not personalities and he never went for people personally in uh, the height of the highly charged era in which he rose and Corbyn was the same Um, but yeah it's a fair point Um, if that's the point you're making Fraser Uh, By the way, like Helen, I also make bread every week. It's a good thing to do because it's pretty simple after a few times, yet people think you're a wizard. What a great tip. Is it easy? I thought it was really difficult to pull off well, Um, but that is worth pursuing. God, yeah, what you learn on this rock and roll politics podcast. Sorry, some people like to keep it pure politics, not well-being but I'm into the well-being wing, especially given the state of politics at the moment. Um, uh, Kevin Mather mother, mother uh, forgive me if I've mispronounced tell me if I have Kevin. Hol uh, see my podcast listening activity involves nothing more strenuous than a walk along Sandbanks beach. Oh wow. Well that's fantastic. Sandbanks is that I think that's where Harry Redknapp lives, isn't it near Bournemouth and all of that. Oh yeah, well, that's that's a classy backdrop. I hope you agree, this is uh, Kevin, that there is a significant minority of middle ground voters who don't follow the daily ins and outs of the political scene. Yeah, we've talked about that, uh, Kevin. Too many don't follow anything, in my view. Now, politicians aren't allowed to criticise them. I do, I think they should follow. You know, they've got a vote, hard fought for. They should follow the twists and turns of it. Um, but they are instead, this is an interesting, uh, they are instead influenced by occasional exposure of leaders on TV. For many, the main criteria is likability or charisma. Thatcher had it and won. Blair had it and won. Brown didn't have it and lost. Cameron had it and won. May didn't have it and lost. Johnson has it and won. As for Starmer, hmm, perhaps not his strongest suit in wooing these folks which current Labour figure has that charisma that could energize these types of voters yeah I don't know I don't know I don't know if you follow Andrew Adonis on Twitter he's he's every 10 minutes he says bring back Blair because Blair had that kind of charisma Uh, curiously Gordon Brown had a charisma before he became responsible for economic policy in the Labour Party when he assumed he had to become a robot because uh Labour just wasn't trusted on the economy. Um, uh, Yeah, I I don't know. Can you think, email people who have discovered charisma in uh, the upper echelons of the Labour Party. No one at this moment springs to mind, Kevin, but I'll I'll give it some more thought. Uh, By the way, I don't wholly agree with you. My view is the capacity to perform, to teach, to explain, to captivate, is an essential qualification for leadership, but by no means the only qualification for leadership. Um, and some people can learn to become that. I've, I've said it before, but it's very interesting. If you read my book on Prime Ministers, a chapter on Harold Wilson, he learned to have a sense of humour, one or two people told me. And by the end, he was like a stand-up comedian. He was bloody hilarious um but he had to learn it um so anyway uh, now another one from graham mcgregor on leadership graham you listens just after a cycle or walk as part of my recovery wow god i'm so honored that i'm part of your recovery sequence graham you know it makes me sound like a doctor um anyway uh, i'm impressed you need a recovery after a cycle or a walk you you must go for it um Anyway, he suggests that um, Labour will lose badly in Spen, and if, as is likely, that you know the polls remain bad, uh, he wonders about Keir Starmer standing down, uh, then hand over to others, perhaps a woman leader, uh, well placed to create a vision in policy areas for the future, family support from children's. Be- provision for early years to later years care, climate crisis and education and skills opportunities, health and social care. And he thinks um, uh, it might be possible uh, for a, would be the first ever woman leader, uh, to foster cooperation and collegiate ways of working and could be instrumental in modernising the dead hand of Westminster with with its serried ranks of mainly grey men shouting at each other. Um, so, yeah, he wants um, uh, a female leader um, and he wants that leader to initiate com- new community forums all over the UK to develop ideas and policies. Uh, people from existing party structures could be involved as well as recruiting interests and members of the public. He's got some other ideas as well. Uh, I, I think you're right about the urgency. And that's a, quite a good idea that you know, uh, the community forums, as long as it's structured, uh, everything has to be structured with a sense of momentum about the future. So say, my structure would be levelling up, connecting the left behind, uh, the um, low productivity gap, because then you talk about a better, more productive economy which provides money for public services, and so on. Uh, so, it has to be structured. I think if there were to be huge, huge if, a leadership contest, the question would have to be, who can win an election with a credible and radical vision? I don't think the question should be: must labor now elect a woman? I mean the answer to my question might well be a woman, I don't know. But the urgency would be such. Um, that that would have to be the question, and the answer doesn't necessarily mean a woman. It may well be, but I don't think the question should be: It must be a woman. Which woman? It must be who can lead this party to victory, given that it tends to lose elections. Anyway, that's my thoughts on on that. But thank you for all of yours, brilliant as ever. Well, God, look at it. We've gone on for a long time uh, because the questions are so great, and. Um, Yeah, we better stop. Those of you who've been running, rowing, ironing, cooking, walking by a canal, most of you will be walking by a canal on the basis of recent questions, um, or cooking bread like John Lennon in the Dakota apartments in the late 1970s. Whatever you've been doing, thanks for your brilliant questions. As I've said before, I don't understand why, but please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to it, uh, and rate it because that apparently uh, extends its exposure in some magical way. It's called technology. As Blair said, oh, the future is technology, right? You know, not new. Harold Wilson, the white hot heat of the technological revolution. Uh, it, it's, it's been used before, but doesn't mean that's not part of the mix. Yeah, don't forget, June the 28th at King's Place Live and at Greenwich and the Rope Tackle Arts Centre in July and back here, all of us, next week on the canal or whatever else we're doing. Thanks so much for listening. Have a good few days. Bye.